0: The Slate Culture Gab Fest is sponsored by The Jinx, the life and deaths of Robert Durst, the new documentary series from HBO. Four decades, three murders, and one very rich man who refused to speak until now. The Jinx airs Sundays at 8, starting February 8th, only on HBO. The following podcast contains explicit language.
1: I'm Dana Stevens, and this is the Slate Culture Gab Fest, woodshedding edition. It's Wednesday, March 11th, 2015, and on today's program, we're going to talk about Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, which is the grim yet perky new sitcom from the creators of 30 Rock, and which was just released in one 13-episode chunk on Netflix. And then, June Thomas has written a loving ode to her favorite TV credit sequence that's currently playing on television. We'll talk about TV credit sequences, what makes for an effective one, and which are the best and the worst of all time, and currently playing on TV. And then, finally, a former faculty member at a Master of Fine Arts program has written a savage takedown of not only the whole MFA system, but most of the people enrolled in MFA programs, raising the question, can and should fiction writing be taught? And on today's Slate Plus segment, June, Thomas and I will debate or maybe agree on, I don't know, (laughs) at any rate, struggle to understand the merits and disadvantages of daylight savings time, which we've just found ourselves shifted into for the spring. At least in the United States. You Brits don't do it? Oh, we do it, but we didn't do it this year. You haven't done it yet. That's right. Well, we'll get to all that madness. Indeed, we will. So, as you just heard, joining me today is Slate's culture critic and the editor of Outward, which is Slate's LGBTQ section, June Thomas. Hi, June. Thanks so much for having me. And from our D.C. office, we have Slate's culture editor, Dan Coyce. Hey, Dan. Hey, guys. So Steve is traveling this week. He's in Alabama having his, his annual seaweed wrap. And uh, <laughs> and Julia is, unfortunately, under the weather. But I'm really happy to have uh, you, you guys, Dan and Junior, two of my favorite co-podcasters. And uh, I know Steve doesn't listen, so I can just, just blatantly <laughs> say that. <laughs> Julia's feelings won't be too hurt. <laughs> So as is often the case before we get rolling on topic one, we have a little bit of Slate business. June, you wanted to talk about another podcast you're doing.
2: Sure. So Seth Stevenson and I, fresh from Downton Abbey's uh, dissections, are now talking every week about Better Call Saul, the AMC show that's kind of a spin-off of Breaking Bad. And if you're a Slate Plus member, you can listen to the podcast directly after the show ends at 11 p.m. on Mondays Eastern Time. Or if you're not a Slate Plus member for some reason, you can hear the podcast 24 hours later.
0: That's a very natural segue from Downton Abbey to Better Call Saul. (laughs) There show's very, very, a lot in common with those shows.
1: Very similar. I can see a crossover episode easily (laughs) happening. (laughs) (laughs) And we should add that if you're not a Slate Plus member for some benighted reason, you can go to slate.com slash culture plus to sign up through our show and give us the credit. All right, let's get rolling. The Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt is a new half-hour sitcom. It was co-created by Tina Fey and Robert Carlock, who are the creative team behind 30 Rock. And it was initially meant to be an NBC sitcom. And after some apparently not very bitter wrangling, uh, NBC decided to show it on Netflix instead. We can talk about that as a business decision. But I also want to talk about the show itself. It was just released Netflix-style all 13 episodes of the first season. June, you've seen the entire thing, right? Yes, I inhaled it by Saturday morning. Mm-hmm. As, as June tends to do. And Dan, you've seen a goodly chunk as well?
0: I've seen about half. I've seen six episodes. Mm-hmm.
1: And I've seen only four. So I think um, maybe we can describe the show altogether, since you guys know a bit more than I do about how it proceeds. But we promise not to spoil anything major. So as this show begins, we meet Kimmy Schmidt, played by Ellie Kemper. And uh, give us a little bit of her situation, June. So when she was 14, she was snatched and kept in a
2: bunker underground by a doomsday cult leader who said that the apocalypse had happened, and she and her three or four, I guess, sister wives had only survived because they were dumb. And you can tell this is a very uh, mean cult leader.
0: Not your run-of-the-mill, like, no. friendly, nice the guy. kindly don't. kind. Exactly. Yeah.
2: Not a kindly cult leader. And so when the mole women, as the media dubbed them, are liberated from their bunker, they're brought to New York to do the media circus. And the show is very funny about the whole the way that media treats victims, as they call them. And on the spur of the moment, as as the rest of her sister wives are heading back to Indiana, Kimmy decides, screw it, I'm going to stay in New York. I'm going to make it after all. And she needs to just kind of make a clean break. And so the rest of the show essentially is the story of her, you know, just kind of trying to make it after this really traumatic event, but as somebody who is just an uncynical person who sees all the cynicism around her and just chooses not to take part in it. She's a very, it's a very sort of joyful person. And oddly, given that setup, which sounds exceedingly grim, I know, to me, it's a super joyful show. It's a very, it's about kind of a a person who's childlike, but as Margaret Lyons, I think, said in
1: *Vulture*, childlike but not in any way idiotic. Yeah, the character she reminds me of in the movies is Sally Hawkins' character in *Happy Go Lucky*, yes. the Mike the Mike Lee film, who has not gone through the kind of trauma that Kimmy Schmidt has, but has that similar sort of untarnishably bouncy and shiny personality. Yeah,
0: I mean, it does make sense that that's the. I mean, that that's the way the character is developed because, you know, the point of the show is that it's a a cheerful naive in New York, and I guess one of the funny sort of ideas behind the show is that in our media saturated age, the only way that someone could be completely ignorant of the way things are in New York and the you know, and how cell phones work in our modern world is if they were literally locked in a bunker for 15 years. Right. Like that's what it takes at this point. You can't just take someone from Indiana and put them in New York and expect comedy to ensue. They have to be in a bunker in Indiana and then go to New York.
1: Right. So in addition to the sort of trauma background, there's there's also this unfrozen caveman element, exactly. right? It's that classic comedy like Austin Powers or you know, anything where somebody Somebody kind of is un- unburied from a vault, a historical vault, and has to experience modernity for the first time.
0: And all their references are old, right? Like they, like Titus Kimmy's roommate, has this book that he keeps called Things People Don't Say Anymore, that he has <laughs> Kimmy write stuff in whenever she says something like, raise the roof.
1: <laughs> yeah. Word up. Would you guys agree this is a warmer, less cynical show than 30 Rock? I think it's full of non-cynical people, but
2: I think there is cynicism all around them and they see it.
0: Yeah, but I do think that this is a show about people, about Kimmy specifically, pushing against that cynicism, about New York as a place where you can be forever hopeful that your dreams will come true, as opposed to 30 Rock, which I often felt was more about New York as a place that will constantly crush your dreams, and because you are stupid, you attempt to fulfill them again.
2: Right.
1: Well, one very unrealistic uh, New York character, I think, is, is is their extremely forgiving landlady, played by Carol Kane. <laughs> yeah. I love Carol Kane in that role, but I yeah. mean, is there something so incredibly dated about the idea of this kind of kindly landlady who lets you slip and slip and slip on the
0: rent? And she, of course, was the landlady for Titus, who is Kimmy's best friend in New York and her roommate. And I would say it's sort of the second lead in this show, a guy who usually gets the B-plots in most of the episodes, and who's a pretty vivid and great character. He's a uh, slightly down, well, an extremely down on his heels, approaching over the hill actor type. He's black and gay. He is funny and extremely uh, image conscious. He has a real penchant for breaking into song at any moment. Um, But he also talks really straight to Kimmy about her real chances in New York. And part of the cynicism that she is bashing through in the early episodes of the show is his cynicism about his own failed career and about her chances of success in the big city. And so there are some really great interactions between them where they sort of push against each other and she makes him a little brighter and he teaches her a little bit about the world that she's entering.
1: Well, let's listen to a scene between the two of them. So, so Kimmy is played again by Ellie Kemper and Titus is played by Titus Burgess, who is also a sometime guest on 30 Rock.
2: That's right. He was, he was one of the characters on Queen of Jordan.
0: Okay, open on Kimmy and Titus walking down the street. Titus looking amazing. How's your little love triangle going?
1: Nope, next topic.
0: How dare you? For the last three months has been, what's the internet? Who's that guy? What's to Swinton? Yeah. And I have told you, Tubes, the president, and no one knows. And now you have something juicy happening. Look, this is
1: not fun for me. I mean, Logan got into a fight with Dong because Dong likes me.
0: Enjoy the attention, woman. The last time I had two men fighting over me, I was at a table at a Fire Island arm wrestling match. Enjoy it?
1: I feel sick to my stomach. I mean, what do I even say to them? Is that a dolphin with a bow on it?
2: No,
0: you wouldn't say that. Wait, what?
2: And indeed, the image that we saw at the end of that clip was a dolphin with a bow on it. But don't worry, they're mammals, so they can breathe.
0: Or maybe not. I mean so the sh- as you said the show is extremely dense with gags you can tell just from those series of lines that I mean basically there's a joke every line there's sight gags there's pacing gags there's editing gags I mean and so the and so the question with a show like this becomes like what's their hit rate uh and I found the hit rate in Kimmy Schmidt like very really good like I would say like 6 out of every 10 jokes land pretty hard and I ended up loving it and I loved each of these characters i love how enthusiastic and optimistic kimmy is despite the like really dark places that her Mm -hmm. life has taken her like i don't know that i've ever seen a show that cheerfully hints at such horrors and then glosses right over them there's that moment where she's talking to a boy she likes and he asks her uh, you know he just asks her an innocuous question and she basically says well before you ask yes there was weird sex stuff in the bunker and then she just moves right on to the next topic and i and i feel like every episode there's some deep dark thing that's just hinted at but then she just flitters over in a totally delightful and weird way. And that was sort of the fun of the show for me.
1: I think it's convincing because of Ellie Kemper. I mean, I'm curious Absolutely. to see where this goes in the rest of the season and in later seasons, if there are any with the trauma story, because, you know, obviously there's like a lot of dark stuff being tamped down very visibly. A big part of the joke of the show is tamping down and, the, you know, from the outside in and you got to smile on the outside, no matter how you feel. And so I do wonder how that trauma narrative is going to proceed as it seems like people from the Indiana mole people past, you know, start to come into her New York present. But Because of Ellie Kemper, somehow this impossibly strange conceit that, you know, a woman who has been essentially sexually abused and kidnapped for two decades is now this sweet, bouncy Mary Tyler Moore, Ellie Kemper somehow makes it fly. It's interesting that you mentioned if there's a second season, because
2: when Netflix picked the show up from NBC, they already greenlighted a second season. So it will be really interesting to see how season two is different from season one, because season one was written and almost finished i believed it, it the editing wasn't quite done but it had it was at a very very late stage when nbc decided you know what maybe this isn't right for broadcast television and i just wonder like you know just because netflix can push things more and just is is free of all i mean even from basic things like act outs you know so that they can go to ads to language to just sort of adult situations um it will be i'm just so so curious and i i just um every Friday evening I'll be going to Netflix and seeing if season two has arrived yet.
0: But it's like, it doesn't seem to me that like the adult situations or anything like that are the reasons why it wasn't right for NBC. But I do think it wasn't right for NBC, mostly because it feels like it's weird enough that the show belongs someplace where the exact right people can find it and you are not even, you're not even pretending to appeal to like a mass audience. You know, even the weirdest sitcoms on NBC always have this sort of patina of, well, yes, you know, it's this show, Parks and Rec is really for you, obscure indie comedy fan, but, uh, but we have these things in it that make it seem like maybe it's for the world. And we try and sell ads on it, and we care about its ratings. And if it's not a hit, oh no, what are we gonna do? But this show does not feel like a show that could ever thrive in that kind of an environment. It feels like a show that should be for the weird people in the world, and the weird people in the world can go find it on Netflix, and they can love it, and everyone else can never even consider its existence.
2: It's true. It, you know, for all of the um, the hand wringing about sitcoms being dead and comedy being dead, and I've, God knows, I've been one of the people singing that song. It's actually comedy is stronger than ever. It just looks really different. It it looks right. like sketches. It looks like animated shows. It looks like shows that aren't. Really, that funny, but our half-hour show so counts as comedies. I roll back my uh, my grim visage a little bit.
1: For all the darkness of the premise of Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, it is a fairly conventional sitcom in its form, right? And at times even, especially when she's sitting around with Titus and the landlady, it almost feels to me like a multi-camera, old-fashioned, or even like a British, yes. a certain kind of British domestic sitcom.
2: There's a certain look to it. That, you know, it's funny. There's a, I, I did a piece um, that went live on Slate on Monday about something that happens to Titus. It almost doesn't matter what. But there's a clip that's in that piece that I swear, as, as because I stared at it a million times, it really did look like something out of like the Benny Hill show. Not in terms of being that kind of comedy, but just the look of the thing. It looks very old-fashioned.
1: Yeah, we haven't even talked about the kind of color scheme and the bright perkiness and the fact that this is a very, like, candy-colored kind of childlike show in its presentation in some ways. I
0: think it's like screwing up the color balance <laughs> on my TV. Like, Ellie Kemper's hair looks sort of like... Mauve. <laughs> it's all it's all screwed up because of the crazy colors everyone wears.
1: It's worth it, I think, just for her printed pants alone. I would send people just oh, yeah. so that they can they can see the wonderful flowered pants of Kimmy Schmidt.
2: I think she's going to bring back the yellow cardigan back on someone other than Slate's own, Forrest Wickman.
0: I, oh, man, I can't wait.
1: All right. Well, I guess that's all the time we have for Kimmy Schmidt, but we're sending people there, right? I'm not sure I love it quite as much as you guys do, but it's it's pretty intriguing. I would definitely send people to uh, to at least watch a few episodes and see what they think. It's magnificent.
0: Yeah, I like it a lot. And I definitely I, I also think that you can watch five minutes of the show and you will immediately know whether you will love it or hate it quite.
1: So again, it's Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. The entire thing is on Netflix right now, the first season and uh, go and see it and tell us what you think at Facebook dot com slash culturefest. All right, well, let's take a break because now is the time in our show when we talk about our sponsor. And this week, the Culture Gab Fest is sponsored by The Jinx, The Life and Deaths of Robert Durst, which is the new documentary series from Andrew Jarecki on HBO. It's about four decades, three murders, and one very rich man who refused to speak until now. The Jinx airs Sundays at 8 on HBO. It's filmmaker Andrew Jarecki's six-part examination of Robert Durst, the reclusive millionaire at the heart of three murders. The show exposes long-buried information that was discovered during their seven-year investigation of a series of unsolved crimes. The show was made with the cooperation of Robert Durst, who has consistently maintained his innocence and who remains a free man today. The Jinx comes from Andrew Jarecki and Mark Smerling, the Oscar nominees behind the documentary Capturing the Freedmen's. And Durst came to know Jarecki after the release of his feature film, All Good Things, which we talked about here on The Gabfest, which was a fictional account of this same story starring Ryan Gosling as Robert Durst and Kirsten Dunst as his unfortunate wife. The Jinx, The Life and Deaths of Robert Durst airs Sundays at 8 only on HBO, and we thank them for their support. All right, back to the show. June, last week you published a post on Outward talking about why the opening credits to the television show The Fosters, which we've talked about here on the GabFest with you, I believe, didn't you come in to talk about it? Why its opening credits are the best credits on television. Are we talking
0: about opening credits? It's the Culture GabFest with Dana and June, plus Dan Kois. He's here, too, talking about TV and movies and books. So light your pipe and put on your cultural boots. (laughs)
1: Dan, are you proposing that instead of our theme song is the new, yes. the new Culture Fest intro?
0: Correct. <laughs> for, uh, for the drive please time, please by. Royalty checks uh, <laughs> to Dan Kois, CEO of Slate. Anyway, sorry. Go on. <laughs>
1: So I thought maybe we would start off with an actual little walkthrough of the Foster's opening credits so we can hear the music and hear June talk about what you see under the music and what she loves so much about it. And then we can go from there to just sort of free associate on what makes a great credit sequence, what makes a horrible one, which are the ones we love and hate. Okay. So we get a, a pan, we get some breakfast cereal, we get mail
2: on the stairs, the contents of Steph's pocket, a blue sponge. Somebody in bed with pillows, music, headphones, a kid's hand hanging out of bed. Those kind of things when you measure your kids. Syrup falling on pancakes, music that someone's written, playing the piano, uh, a cup, playing the guitar or a guitar, lots of pencils, frames on the wall and stuff on the fridge and someone painting her toenails and ducks and then a couple in bed and the logo. Wow, I was surprised how fast those images went by because when you're watching at home, it seems pretty leisurely. You get to enjoy all of those images and that actually felt like kind of a sprint.
1: Well, you were mentioning in your piece that you love these credits so much that sometimes you watch them a couple extra times, sort of getting yourself in the mood for the show.
2: Yeah, so when we discussed the Fosters on the Culture Gab Fest, I'm going to out her. Happy Menical, who is married to John Swansburg, I guess started watching the show and then she sent us a note, Dana, ...with a picture of the blue sponge. And she said that every week that blue sponge just slaughtered her. And I have to admit that I hadn't really specifically noticed the blue sponge. I had just noticed that a lot of the images were from home. And it was this messy house and a lot of kids... ...and just kind of, you know, the feeling of a house that's full of people. So I actually called Peter Page, who is one of the creators of the show... And he told me that that's exactly what they were doing, that this is a show, after all, that's about a lesbian couple and their five kids, some of whom are biological, some are adopted, some are foster. And that a lot of people wouldn't really be able to relate to that, but they would recognize a home. And so the point of this sequence is to just evoke home for people and get them in the right frame of mind to sort of receive what is about to come and not to be sort of harping on the differences from their own life, which struck me as very smart and very effective.
1: Yeah. This is one of those credit sequences that that serves to to establish a mood basically, right? We looked at this breakdown by the TV critic Alan Sepinwall of what credit sequences are there to do and he talked about expository credit sequences that do things like what's an expository credit sequence? Right, exactly. The song from Gilligan's Island that sets up the entire premise. Beverly Hillbillies. Right? Yeah, maybe that's more of an old-fashioned thing. I can't think of an expository setup right now. Well, actually the beginning of Kimmy Schmidt which is this auto-tuned version of a story of the Indiana mole women escape that's sort of an expository Which setup. is
2: another throwback, which is, you know, again, part of the show that we were talking about.
1: Right. And there's the mood setting. And what were some of the other functions that Sapinwal talked about? There's
0: the one that just sort of elucidates the themes of the show, mm-hmm. like cheers, where you're meant to sort of get into the spirit of a place where everybody knows your name.
1: Or Star Trek was another right. one he mentioned, right? To boldly go where no man has gone before. It's a thematic statement of mission.
2: Yeah. Doctor Who is a, another famous one that I'm not sure where it fits in because it's, it's kind of a song and, and light pulsing. And maybe it's just kind of getting getting you ready for sci-fi and, and space travel.
1: And that credit sequence, I imagine, has changed radically over the different Actually, versions. Actually, not, not
2: that radically. Not as radically yeah. as it yeah. should Really?
1: <laughs> yeah.
2: People, you know, the the Whovians can tell, you know, specifically what season each each version, but if you listen to them side by side, they're extraordinarily similar.
0: So can I dissent on the Foster's credits? Oh, Descend away.
2: You, yeah, by all means. And I, I bet your dissent is what is an issue that I have, but go ahead.
0: Is it that they're totally boring and generic and this could be the credit sequence of literally any show that is about a family oh. uh, and nothing about it says anything interesting about this particular show or why we like the characters?
2: I, I so disagree. Sorry, I hear, Making like...
0: the case that these characters are ordinary is like, that's. I agree that that's a swell marketing move for a show that wants to make sure it induces people who might not otherwise think they have anything in common with this family to watch the show. But as an actual opening credit sequence, a little mini piece of art that's meant to put you in the spirit of the show, this this does absolutely nothing for me. And so I would compare it to something like Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, where what's notable about that, I think, is not just that it like gives a little chunk of exposition of, to remind people what the show's about. But because it's weird enough and candy-colored enough and bizarre and pop culture-relevant enough, it is actually a, a takeoff on the um, hilarious black neighbor meme that has often takes off when something traumatic happens and a black neighbor is interviewed and he says something so crazy that people then auto-tune it, um, as Aisha Harris very notably wrote about on Slate last year. Unbreakable, they alive, damn it! It's a miracle. Unbreakable, they alive, damn it! But females are strong. And Unbreakable, man. they alive, damn it! It's a miracle. Unbreakable, they alive,
1: damn it! That's gonna be, uh, you know, a uh, oh. fascinating transition. Damn it.
0: It's so weird that it could only ever be for Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. There's no other show that this credit sequence could be for. But The Fosters, that could have been that could have been the credits on Family Ties. Why wasn't it?
2: I've got one question for you, Dan. Have you watched the show, Do You Know the Characters nope. on The Fosters? Nope. Now, I concede that it's a problem that if you don't know the characters, you're not going to recognize the reference to them. But if you have ever seen the show... The opening sequence is actually full of references to each of the characters. We see something, Steph is a police officer. We see her emptying her pockets, the detritus from her pockets onto the dresser. We see, you know, the music isn't just generic music. It's music written by Brandon, the oldest son, who's who's a real musician. You see the guitar is a guitar that he gave Callie that was a big bonding for them. That kid painting her toenails, yes, it's one of the kids, but toenail painting was actually a big theme in season one. <laughs> and the the two ducks, I think that represents the twins, Jesus and Mariana. And so, in fact, it might seem generic, but there is real profundity and the final sort of holding of hands which to me is amazing because this is about a lesbian couple who have kids and so a lot of the show is about their kids it's not about their sex life it's a family show but we see them in bed making a connection and that is is revolutionary to me even now so i can see that the fact that it appears generic is a problem but it is in fact not at all generic it's extremely specific although i must confess i'm not quite sure what the blue sponge refers to
0: all right, I yield, as someone who does not watch the show, I will yield that the credits are meaningful to someone who knows the show, who would not view it, as I did, as a collection of stock photos with a bad song behind them.
1: The song is terrible, though. That I concede. But I think that your division on the Foster's credit sequence is precisely an illustration of the fact that we look for different things from credit sequences, right? The Foster's credit sequence is very painterly. Happy Menachal, who loved the sponge so much, is a painter, and she wants to paint the sponge. You know, it's sort of this very beautiful depiction of different objects from domestic life, but it is completely nonspecific to the characters, right? It's not a sort of Too Many Cooks style intro yeah. where you see each character with their character name and their actor name, and it doesn't sort of establish the show in that way. But I think we should go through both historically and with shows that are on the air right now and talk about what credit sequences we think work and which ones we really can't stand.
0: <laughs> I'd like to open with a bold statement that I think will get me a lot of hate mail, which is that I hate the Game of Thrones credits. <gasps> Interesting. I hate them.
1: Oh, they're usually adduced on lists of the best. I'm not right. a big yes. Game of Thrones watcher, but I do remember how the cities rise up and all that stuff. What do you hate right. about them, Dan?
0: Well, they're so they're 17 minutes long. Yes. <laughs> That's the first problem. Yes. And so often, when the credits end, there's, in fact, no time left for the show. They'll just go straight to the closing (laughs) credits. And that's frustrating as a fan of the show. So I like the song. The song is great. My wife and I, when we watch the show, we like to sing along with the lyrics to the song, which are, of course, Game of Thrones, fucking Game of Thrones, fucking Game of Thrones, fucking Game of Thrones. But... Uh but what bugs me is that they're so long that, and that they are meant to be a map. Ostensibly they are a map of Westeros and its environs that should help you get into sort of the geography of the show and the geopolitics of the show which are so complicated. But they film the map in so many skewed angles and with so many backwards crossing the plane cuts that you in fact can't make head or tails of the map and what is where. And so anyone who's trying to use this map to give you a sense of what Westeros is actually like and what is happening will instead be totally confused and bewildered. And so it ends up being just like a long, 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 pretty set of origami cities that just makes me feel like I could be watching people having sex and killing each other (laughs) right now, but instead I'm watching origami.
1: Or simply an accurate Google map of Westeros with a little blue dot that's us traveling along from kingdom to kingdom.
0: That would be great.
1: What's a credit sequence you hate, June?
2: Well, I don't know hate is a strong word cuz typically these days you can go right through them. I'm I'm mad at this really short ones. I understand, you know, today a
1: lot of credit sequences are almost literally blink and you miss it. Right. Like Breaking Bad is a little musical theme, right? It lasts 15 seconds. Yeah. Or or like Scandal, I mean, tri- sometimes you
2: miss it. You literally miss it cuz it's just cameras and, you know, one piece of paper, essentially, you know, with Scandal on it.
1: A piece of paper. I love that they just (laughs) scribble it on a piece of paper and film it. It's a nice
0: nice font. Don't worry. Yeah. But yeah, it's it's over in three seconds.
1: Yeah. And Girls doesn't have an opening credit sequence at all, right? There's just that cold open and then there's the moment where the word Girls appears in some kind of pastel
2: Right. Because they're kind of into, you know, modern music. How Um, do you guys
0: feel about the Oranges of the New Black credits?
2: Well, I mean, I... This is one where, you know, so much of what we're talking about is really a reflection of what's going on. These shows like Scandal, How to Get Away with Murder have super short credit sequences because nobody has time anymore. It's all about getting to the ads. Whereas on Netflix, Orange is the New Black, House of Cards, Orange is the New Black, I love the images, but I get tired of it because essentially I sit and watch 13 episodes and I get tired of yeah, seeing Yeah, that Regina
1: Specter song, it's actually a good song, it's but it goes song. on too long. Exactly. Every single time there's a moment you think it's over, and then there's another whole verse.
2: Exactly. And it's a beautiful idea that we're seeing people, you know, skin tags and all. We're getting close-ups, no filter, all of that.
1: It's all very thematic, but... It gets tiresome. That's very true. Keep them short and sweet and as different as possible. House of Cards also, I feel like, goes on way too long. And talk about what, Dan, what you were saying about the Fosters. It doesn't evoke anything specific. I mean, House of Cards is just sort of like it's Washington, D.C., and we're all rushing around. I don't don't know what else it it evokes than that.
0: Oh, that one's so deeply personal to me. It's basically my life. (laughs) I'm just kidding. It's not. So what are your guys' all-time favorite opening credit sequences on any historical show? What's the best one?
1: I mean, if we're going all-time, I think the the top ten has to include the Mary Tyler Moore show. Incredible song, right? Great font, wonderful images, introduces the feeling, introduces the characters, never gets old.
0: Can take a nothing day And suddenly make it all seem worthwhile Well, it's you, girl, and you should know it
2: With each glance and every little movement you show it Love is all about
0: Priceless final image too, which like keys it like every time you are go out on that great final tossing image. up
2: the hat, yeah. yeah. And there's a statue in Minneapolis, in downtown Minneapolis, of of Mary throwing up the hat. And I don't, I, when I saw it, I had to throw up my hat. I mean, <laughs> it's what what bigger tribute to an opening sequence? It's there in bronze on the streets of the city that the show was supposed to be set in.
1: I think that's definitely a great one. I mean, if, and if we're digging back, I mean, Cheers is another classic, wonderful song, doesn't date. Let's see The Sopranos. I never got tired of watching the Sopranos credit yeah. sequence. Even when I was watching the thing on DVD and could easily have fast-forwarded, right. I never fast-forwarded. I I mean, I I can't separate my favorite like the shows that mean
2: the most to me are the ones where the music is, you know, it it just gets grabs my heart. Like Coronation Street my all time favourite show of all time even though these days it's just a shadow of itself this is and, the 50
1: years running yeah, British yeah, soap
2: opera yeah and uh, you know when I hear that song which I too Dan have given it words it has no words but I always sing oh Coronation Street oh Coronation Street um, and it's, it's awesome but uh, you know I have to say Downton Abbey I think also has a fantastic opening credit sequence because that show is so annoying it's, it makes me mad I'm so like argh And then I see the dog's butt and I hear the lovely music and I see the images of upstairs and downstairs and beautiful houses. And it just does put you in the right frame of mind to receive what's going to come for the next, you know, 50 minutes or whatever. And that's as much as you can ask for in a show.
0: Uh, It's funny. The credit sequence I love the most is a show that I don't even really care about that much at all, uh, which is The Rockford Files. Oh, so good. Yeah. This is Jim Rockford. At the tone, leave your name and message. I'll get back to you. Hey, Jim, this is Louie down at the fish market. You're going to pick up these halibut or what? I just think it's like a perfect little bit of... Of filmmaking, it mm-hmm. opens with mm-hmm. so there's a gag in every episode, which is something that I like when credit sequences do this. They, it opens with the answering machine, and there's in every episode there was a different funny message being left on his answering machine. But then it's just like a funky song and some awesome photos of Jim Rockford doing stuff, and he looks like he's living it up. And there's a babe on his arm, and he's drinking a drink, and he's doing a little surveillance, and then it's done. And I, I like I could watch that a million oh, times. Oh, completely,
1: over. and yeah. it's from the great era of instrumental yeah. theme songs. Right, I mean, I could hum it right this Absolutely. very second. Stanford and Son is another. I barely remember that show. I'm not sure I was even a regular watcher, but I love that that funky opening song so much. Well, there were so many more that I wanted to shout out to, including the perfect Freaks and Geeks opening credits credit sequence. But uh, I think we should wrap here and get to our, our next topic. But please come to our Facebook page and tell us what is the best opening TV credits sequence of all time at Facebook.com slash CultureFest. Okay, let's move on to our third topic. Recently in the venerable Seattle alt-weekly The Stranger, a novelist and a former writing teacher named Ryan Boudinot published a short but very provocative takedown of not only the MFA program as a concept, but... By fairly explicit suggestion, the intelligence and writing talent and uh, potential for success of most of the people enrolled in MFA programs. And as you can imagine, the Internet took this very hard. There was a lot of pushback against Ryan Boudinot's uh, argument or sort of listicle, I don't know what you would call it, his his angry rant. And uh, and also some, some support for his brutally honest supposed truth telling to MFA students. Um, This seemed like a particularly germane topic for us to do this week because we have you, Dan, on the show, and you are the holder of a Master of Fine Arts, correct?
0: Also, a lot of student loan debt. Yes, I'm (laughs) a holder of both those things.
1: So I think we should maybe go to you first um, to hear a reaction to Ryan Boudinot, but I wanted to read first just a couple of the incredibly mean things he says. So in the very second sentence of, of this piece, he says the following, the vast majority of my students were hardworking, thoughtful people devoted to improving their craft despite having nothing interesting to express and no interesting way to express it. So he starts right <laughs> off with some, you know, some very prickly and, uh, and antipathetic things to say about his students. And then under the bold heading, no one cares about your problems if you're a shitty writer. He goes on to complain about his many students who use the MFA as a platform to talk about their emotional abuse and suffering as a child. And he goes, on to say the following, and this is maybe what got him in the most trouble. Just because you were abused as a child does not make your inability to stick with the same verb tense for more than two sentences any more bearable. If he'd stopped there, that'd be one thing. But then he goes on to say, in fact, having to slog through 500 pages of your error-riddled student memoir makes me wish you had suffered more. So I guess Boudinot got a lot of pushback from people saying, what are you, a promoter of, of child abuse? I mean, I think his rhetorical excess here is, is clear and that he is not actually wishing for people to have suffered more in their childhood, but he, is, he does come down very hard on his students. So I wanted to hear y'all's reaction to uh, to this rant.
0: Well, uh, as yes, as a holder of an MFA, I mostly have to say I agree with Ryan Boudinot um, about a very specific kind of, of MFA student. I think that the place he got in trouble is that, uh, is that this reads, because of some sloppy writing and because of the... Glorious rhetorical excesses that his rage has driven him to, like a takedown of all mFA students, basically, except for the chosen few who he decided were really great. But who this is actually delivered to, I think it 's a rant delivered to about one to maybe two students that are in every workshop every semester. Anyone who 's ever been in an mFA program knows this student, the guy is he 's a total pain in the ass; he thinks he 's a genius. He, but in fact, he is sort of middling to bad. He refuses to read anything. He constantly brags about how he never reads anything except Cormac McCarthy. He is obsessed with career stuff. He is constantly demanding to know when professors are going to introduce him to their agents. And he drives everyone insane. And I think that he's in like almost every MFA program. In fact, there is a Twitter feed devoted to this kind of guy that has become wildly popular in the last six months called Guy in Your MFA. <laughs> it's actually run by a, not even a person in MFA. It's it's a woman who's a senior at Brown named Dana Schwartz. It's extremely funny, um, but it is it is in the voice of this guy in your MFA who's constantly like, oh, you, you claim that all dialogue has to have quotation marks, but are you familiar with the works of Cormac McCarthy? <laughs> um, and there's always this guy in every program. And, and Ryan Boudinot's rant reads like the kind of thing you write if you've dealt with just one too many of this guy. And you're sick of them sucking up all the oxygen in your classroom. You're sick of them, like, making everyone else crazy and making you crazy. And so you then basically attribute the worst things about them to the program as a whole and to the vast majority of students. When, in fact, the vast majority of students in an MFA program are neither – Objectionable, nor amazing. They're just aspiring writers who are okay, who are pretty good. Like like I was. I was an okay, pretty good aspiring writer. Neither the star nor th- that guy in your MFA. <laughs>
1: Right. And something else that has been noted and I think is very true about this Ryan Boudinot rant is that he's very focused on success and the idea that the only desirable outcome of being in an MFA program is to come out as a successful, famous, published writer. And the idea that you might simply be there to refine your craft for whatever reason, that writing might go on to be your avocation rather than your vocation, right. that there might be different values to the degree, is not something that comes into play. Yeah, actually, yes. th- that
2: was the thing that that most I've – never, I've never done an MFA. I've never taken a writing class. And I'm just sort of curious what it is that people, I don't know if it's this, I don't mean to sound so, I can't even bring, bring myself to say, it. what do people go into it for? Because that sounds so attacking. I don't mean it that way. I'm just kind of curious because I couldn't tell what his, even what his view of his role as an MFA teacher was. Like, was it talent spotting? He seemed to be really into talent. Is it, Helping people improve, because in a way he seems to be just attacking his students so much that you almost think, well, why did you take their money if if the idea is that they're going you know he seemed to be saying in, indicating that they were going to become stars, but that they couldn 't become stars so why where, why was he admitting them why were they being admitted into the program? I was just very confused by his tone of what mFA programs are for so I think it's
0: very different for different kinds of programs. You Mm -hmm. know, the the environment at a place like Iowa or or Columbia, where basically everyone is a star and everyone has a pretty decent shot at getting a, a book contract, if they can really nail it. That's different than someplace like a low residency MFA of the type that Ryan Boudinot was a teacher at. You know, that's a place where often it's a mix of people who are ambitious writers who really have a goal of getting a novel published and people who really do want to just improve their writing or work on their craft or just think it would be something interesting to do. And I think that those places are much less careerist than uh, than a lot of more traditional uh, residency MFA programs. And so I agree that it is a little weird that he is directing... Basically this is like the kind of rant that you would direct to the most careerist gunner at Iowa, mm-hmm. but it was directed at his poor students at his school who probably were not in it for the same thing as that one asshole who he constantly had to deal with.
1: Were you in a residency program, Dan, or were you in one of these more low impact programs like Boudinotin?
0: No, I was in I was in a standard MFA. I did it at George Mason University. It's a two to three year program. You were meant to attend a full um, a full complement of classes every semester, and you do multiple workshops every semester, and you have the same people in your class from class to class, and you definitely get to know them. And I'm sure, I'm sure there are people in that MFA program who still remember me as their that guy in your MFA, <laughs> and there are people I remember as my guy in your MFA, and it definitely creates this sort of little hot house environment in which you just get a sense that everyone in these programs and maybe this probably wasn't true but i got the sense that everyone in this program was constantly on the hunt for for what could possibly get their novel published and and everyone had a real sense that maybe if you played your cards just right and your professor gave you just the right tip-off, maybe you could be the one, the one who escaped. And I do think that it's true that it is very clear, not just to the professors, but to most of us writers, who the stars are. Sometimes those stars are stars because they actually have an incredible writing talent that you can sense the instant you see them. Sometimes they're stars because they just have unbelievably forceful personalities in the workshop or in the classroom or just in social events that they just sort of become the king or the queen of that MFA program. But you definitely sense that, and I don't think he's wrong to point that out. And the other thing that I would agree with him on, though he he was extremely infelicitous in the way he put it, is that he is not wrong that a shittily written memoir is even worse to read than a shittily written short story, especially in the context of a workshop where you read this thing that is that is deeply personal and often revealing of of, uh, of some horrible incident in a person's past, but is also poorly written and and not good, and then you then face the person in the workshop who's ripped open their soul and poured out its contents, it provokes this sort of kind of crazy readerly indignation, which is that you simultaneously feel bad for the thing that this person has had to endure. And you feel angry at them for subjecting you to it in in infelicitous prose. And it also is very difficult in a a workshop situation to critique a memoir like this in any way that doesn't feel to the writer like you are critiquing their life. And so it leads the most awful workshop experiences I've ever had are experiences where someone turned in a memoir and it wasn't very good and people very delicately tried to critique the writing in some way and it just turned into an, a horrible ugly scene and oh, this definitely reads like the rant of a professor who dealt with like five of these in a semester and was like fuck it I'm out I cannot deal with this anymore
1: <laughs> that segment too made me think of the, the arc on girls, girls this absolutely. season right in which Hannah goes to, to Iowa to the Iowa right. Writers Workshop and then and then drops out of it I mean I did think I love girls I'm a huge fan but to me everything that took place in those Iowa Writers Workshop scenes seemed completely off the tone seemed wrong it didn't seem like Iowa could possibly be like that. Dan, can you speak to that at all? For example, those various kind of psychodramatic scenes where she read a piece of her shitly written memoir and was taken well, apart by her fellow students? There was that
2: thing there where they, I guess, are not allowed to, to use n- nonfiction. So they kept saying, no, that happened. That's real. Um, and so, which obviously is kind of a meta reference, I think, to Lena Dunham. Um,
0: yeah, that's the thing that happens in workshops. People get really, I mean, because you are constantly like, trying to figure out if someone is, like, workshopping their memoir in your fiction workshop, or whether you can critique, for example, a stupid decision that a character in a story made only to have the writer come back to you and say, well, you can't say that no one would ever do that because I did that. It happened to me. Uh, And, yeah... Shit like that happens all the time.
1: <laughs> I think what bugged me most about those girls' seminar sequences is the teacher never interacted at all. All right, The teacher just sort of sat there and let all of this crosstalk go on among her that's crazily actual, competitive uh, students. Is that God, how that's it actually actual works?
0: mode of workshop teaching. Different, different professors do it different ways. And I don't know how Ryan Boudinot did it. He seems unlikely to be the kind of guy who would keep his mouth shut long enough <laughs> to let something like this happen. But, yes, there are definitely workshop teachers who, view, who have a rule – that they are always the last person to speak about a story, that everyone in the room must say something about the story and that a discussion must ensue. And they do not want to poison the discussion by making it clear what their opinion is first. So they will always be the last one to speak. That's like a standard workshop mode.
1: It sounds like Uh, an est seminar. It just sounds (laughs) (laughs) so touchy-feely and uncomfortable. I have to say, I I had a response to Ryan Boudinot, which I suspect,
2: I don't know if if it's real or if it's just kind of my own, throwing my own stuff onto it. But it felt like it's almost like the drama of the MFA teacher that really you're doing this because you want to write but instead you're kept away from your writing because you have to read this student writing and there's a lot of it and it keeps you away from your own work and some of it's bad and it kind of embitters you and it, that, that kind yeah. of cycle of the thing that you want to do is constantly being pulled away from you by this responsibility and this obligation that you grow to hate that it kind of felt like maybe there's a glitch in the system that if you are still a person who has any ambition or desire to carry on being a writer yourself, you're just throwing so many hurdles, really significant hurdles, into your path. And, and I think it must lead to a lot of really sort of angry, bitter people.
1: Yeah, I mean, it felt to me like a lot of score settling on his part, right? Like he was settling scores with specific people that he had worked with from his past, and he was clearly not someone who was cut out to be a teacher.
0: Right. There are definitely people in professors in MFA programs who are not like Ryan Boudinot. Who are modestly successful writers with a couple of good books under their belt who find ways to do their own work and also embrace teaching students, whether they're stars or pains in the ass or the vast unwashed middle like most of us are. They teach them with joy and with care and they really care about their work and they help advance their careers if that's important to those writers or they just make them better writers and readers if that's what's important. There are tons of MFA teachers who are out there like that who I I don't think are ever going to write a piece like that. But the one thing that the glut of MFA programs has caused, the incredible boom of MFA programs in the last 20 years has caused is that there's a, now a ton of MFA teachers, a ton of mid-career writers who are teaching in MFA programs, and they're not all good teachers. No MFA program, I bet, on the face of the earth only has good teachers. They all have probably some, Ryan Boudinose, who I think would probably admit that he was not the ideal guy to be a a teacher at an MFA program. In fact, you know, there's this line in here where he talks about about the kid who asked what he should read over break, and and jokingly, I told him he should read David Foster Wallace and and Roberto Bolaño and Thomas Pynchon. And that line, just that line, and the specific evocation of those three dude- loved writers. Made me think that maybe Ryan Boudinot, when he was in his MFA program, he used to be the guy in your MFA. <laughs> yeah,
1: I think he's he's kind of still is the guy in your MFA, yeah. right? I mean, God forbid you read Alice Monroe or Toni Morrison or any short story, or right? God
0: forbid you view reading as anything other than reading the most number of difficult pages possible, because that's how you become a real writer. And There is this sense, Laura Miller wrote a pretty good piece in Salon about this, about Ryan Boudinot's piece, and where she made the point that the distinguishing feature of many MFA professors, not all professors, but many professors, is that they too, just like most of Ryan Boudinot's students, are not the real deal. They are not the miracle-working writers who immediately, when you read their work, you understand that they are in line for a Nobel Prize somewhere down the line. They are working writers who are desperately trying to make their own careers work while doing this other thing as you say, June. And yes, the Ryan Boudinot seems like a guy who was particularly infected with that kind of resentment that comes from seeing people be worse than you at a thing that you yourself wish you were better at.
1: So leaving Ryan Boudinot behind for the moment, letting him just be the guy in everyone's MFA class, what is the value at this point of an MFA degree? And I don't just mean professional value, but Dan, you having done it and having witnessed the burgeoning of all these programs, would you advise a young aspiring writer or one of your own daughters, if she wanted to become a fiction writer, to try getting an MFA?
0: Oh, man, if it was my own daughter? <laughs> then you'd be the one in debt, debt, so that's another story. Lot of, I still won't have paid off those debts by the time she's making this decision. Uh, All right, um, someone else's daughter, with, to whom sure. you're neutrally inclined. Sure, your daughter? Sure, your daughter's <laughs> an MFA. Uh I, Look, an MFA can accomplish... Two th- unless you go to Iowa where you can like like literally walk out with a great book contract. An MFA at any mid-tier school can do two things for you if you do it right. It can give you time and space in your life to think about writing and nothing but writing. Now you have to take out loans to get that time and space, but that may be worth it to you if you're at a point in your writing life where that is something you really need. And it can also give you, in your classmates, a community of writers and friends who then can last you for the rest of your life or career as, as people who know your work and can read you and give you feedback and help you and help you along the way. Those things can be really valuable. And the problem with an MFA is that sometimes you end up in an MFA program and it turns out that everyone, that you don't like everyone else or everyone else doesn't like you. And that has happened to people I know and then then you don't get that community. And sometimes you can do as I did and idiotically work jobs all the way through your MFA (laughs) and not be able to pay a lot of attention to your writing and not really get even that first value out of it. So sure, it can have value and it can be a really meaningful experience for people. Don't do it the way I did it. And if you find yourself in a place where it turns out it sucks and you hate everyone, get the hell out.
1: Yeah, do a Hannah Horvath and just pull out of there. Absolutely. All right. So having professionally advised all of our audience in re the MFA program situation, let's move on to the part of our show where we endorse. June, what do you got? I'm so sorry, actually, that
2: Steve isn't here because earlier this year, I became obsessed with this Swedish writer, Leif G.W. Person. And it, it started when Fox put this new show, Backstrom, on the air, which is based... It's a, a, a detective who's based in Portland, Oregon, but it's based on a Swedish detective series. And I read one of the detective series and I kind of got interested in it. And then I became obsessed with this guy, the, the author, who wrote a whole series of books, um, three, a trilogy, in fact, that are known either in England, they're known as the fall of the welfare state, or in America, they're known as the story of a crime. And they are about, in a way, the murder of Olaf Palmer, uh, who was the prime minister of Sweden, who I know from the past is that that's a topic that interests Steve. But they're also really about changes in Swedish culture, about people, about uh, the way that people work or don't work. And I just became obsessed. And it's it's a he's a great writer. It's a mystery series. I mean, we do find out who killed Olaf Palmer, according to Leif G.W. Person. But I just would find myself, like, Googling in the middle of, of reading a lovely passage to find, you know, okay, is that real? Did that happen? I just became obsessed. So uh, I highly recommend Falling into the Life GW Person Rabbit Hole. The three books in this trilogy are Between Summer's Longing and Winter's End, Another Time, Another Life, and Free Falling as if in a Dream. And I highly recommend them. But make sure you have some time uh, to don't do it in the middle of your MFA program.
1: All right. Nice. Dan, what have you got to endorse this
0: week? Um I am endorsing a Tumblr post by a guy named Jim Windolph who's an editor at the Times on his personal Tumblr. It is called Mike Francesa on Kazuo Ishiguro. It is a pitch perfect recreation of what um WFAN's sports talk annoying guy Mike Francesa would say on the fan about Ishiguro's new novel if he and the world cared about contemporary literature (laughs) the way that everyone cares about the NBA. Um, And I'm going to do a quick dramatic reading of one section because this is literally my favorite thing that I have read in the year 2015. (laughs) Another thing, put Ishiguro up against any of your big post-war writers, your mailers, your bellows, your Roths, let's make it easy. Let's say the last few decades. You all right with that, Makeman? Back to the 80s. Who's better? Who is better than Ishiguro? You got your Wallaces, your Franzens, your Monroes. Don't forget Seth. Everyone forgets Vikram Seth because the guy writes one book a decade. But when he does, they're huge. I mean, that suitable boy. That was a huge, huge book. Couple thousand pages. Not like he got extra credit for it, but it was big. And I think they hold it against him. Great writer. Okay, that's Seth. Your Rushdies. Your Amoses. A Julian Bonds. The literature fan of the last 20 years has been conditioned to think that these are the guys, especially in England, cream of the crop. Meanwhile, Ishiguro's coming through each and every time. Never writes a bad book. Never writes a bad line. You're not seeing him up there in the rankings that I'm aware of. Why is that? I don't know. Is he not playing snooker with the boys? I don't know. Is he not at the lunches and the dinners? I don't know. Okay, like I said, I'm not in his house. I don't know what he does. I'm just putting this out there.
1: (laughs) All right, there's a moment where Dan's improv experience really comes <laughs> to shine on the CavFest. We just needed actually Pesca in there to be the other drive-time guy responding uh, in real time.
0: Yeah. He, he could be the minkman. So I also was sorry that Metcalf isn't here because Metcalf is a—, is a Big Jim Windolph fan. In fact, he loves Jim Windolph and his, his writing. He's loved him since he worked for The Observer. Uh, and he particularly loved this one. I posted it on Twitter. Uh, so he may have things to say about this next episode.
1: It's too bad Steve never listens to this podcast because <laughs> he, would, he would love both of those endorsements. Maybe there's he'll swedes endorse it next time. and there's
0: football. We're in right. dialogue with him. How about you, Dana? What do you endorse?
1: All right. So two weekends ago, I went to Philadelphia, spent the weekend there, and um, my two most enjoyable experiences there both had to do with art looking. Mm -hmm. And so I'm going to recommend two uh, artistic experiences in Philadelphia and the Philadelphia area. The first one is to go see the Barnes Foundation collection when you're in Philadelphia, which is this crazy, absolutely nutty private collection of this um, this self-made chemist billionaire named uh, Albert Barnes, who bought art from every epic and hung it all together in his house in a crazy way where he would have, you know, Impressionist art right next to medieval iconography with sort of hinges and ironwork and metal work that he collected. So like you'll find like a door knocker from the 14th <laughs> century or something. And he had this very idiosyncratic way of hanging it in his house. Then after he died, uh, there was a big fight about what would happen to all this art. There's actually a documentary about this called The Art of the Steel. And uh, and it was finally decided that even though he said in his will, my things must stay as they are in my home, that they couldn't be preserved there, that there was no parking, that there was they were too far outside the city. And it basically for the city of Philadelphia, this art needed to go somewhere better. So they built this huge, beautiful, modern building for it, but hung it in the building in exactly the configuration it was last hung when he was alive. Apparently he used to move stuff all around during his life too. So it's this rare thing where he's not Charles Fox. Foster Kane, who collects art and piles it up in a big warehouse. He really lived with his art and cared about it and moved it around all the time. And so to go to this museum is just, it's not like any other art viewing experience you've ever had, because it's not hung thematically or historically. You're not plodding through, like, learning about El Greco, you know? <laughs> it's like, El Greco is there, but he's right next to some bizarre, you know, New Mexican, naive portrait of by someone you've never heard of. And so, and there's no wall text, which is wow. really great for an art looker like me, who's very discursive and tends to go straight for the words and read everything on the wall before I look at the art. So to know what's on the wall, you have to get this little booklet that's sitting in the room and sort of walk around with it. And then when you leave the room, you put it back and each room has its own little book. So you can either consult that or not. But it really just it sort of reinvented art looking for me. It made me feel like, wow, I'm just walking into a room and deciding what to look at based on wherever my eyes go. And it was, it was a really thrilling experience, the Barnes Foundation. And the other one, just really shortly, is outside of Philadelphia in the town of Paoli. It's a little um, suburb of, of Philadelphia. Go see the Wharton Esherick House. You have to make an appointment online to go see it. But it's the home of Wharton Eshrick, who was this sort of arts and crafts era carver, and who worked with with wood of all kinds. And he essentially carved his entire house, everything wow. in it. I mean, he built the house, but all the furniture is made by him, all of the art. The stairs are these strange, you know, curving things made out of these organic forms, and using a mammoth tusk for one of the uh, the handrails. Just the whole place just feels like you're in some sort of fairy hobbit home, and it's where he made his, his life for a couple of decades. And you can make an private appointment to go and get a great tour of it if you go to their webpage, which we'll put a link to on our website. So, the Barnes Foundation and the Wharton Eshrick House, two great days of art viewing in Philadelphia. Wow! All right, thank you so much, June and Dan, for coming in and pinch-hitting. It was a fun show. It yeah, was. Thanks for thanks having me. You. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. Or you can email us at culturefest at slate.com, or drop us a note at our Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Ann Hepperman. Our intern is Lindsay Albrecht. Our managing producer is Joel Meyer. And Andy Bowers is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. The Culture Gab Fest is part of the Panoply Network, and you can look at their entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. That's P-A-N-O-P-L-Y. Our Twitter feed is Slate Cult Fest. For June Thomas and Dan Kois, I'm Dana (laughs) Stevens.